five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. My guest this week is Jesse Klempner, a partner in McKinsey's Washington, D.C. office. He's doing a lot of work on space recently. Actually, McKinsey has published a number of interesting articles on space, which you should check out, and we'll link them in the episode notes. Jesse and I discuss why McKinsey is increasingly focusing on space right now and how corporates can and do work with space, among other topics. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiasts. Welcome back to another episode. I'm joined today by Jesse Klempner, a partner at McKinsey. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you for hosting me. Yeah, Jesse. And very helpfully, so we actually um, put this episode recording into the diary a while ago, but then very helpfully, you guys, I think two or three days ago, put out an article titled Space, the Missing Element of Your Strategy which of course was very helpful in my preparation for this episode. And, you know, I did what I always do these days. I asked ChatGPT to summarize the article. No, I'm kidding. I, I didn't do this. I actually read the entire article and it's very good. And we'll put it into the episode notes. And it was written by yourself and your colleagues, Brooke Stokes, Ryan Brockhart, and Bob Sternfels. Also want to point out Bob Sternfels is the actually the global managing partner of McKinsey, just which I think is interesting to illustrate that this clearly has very senior level attention within the organization. Why is that? Why are you guys focusing on space now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there are two big things that we wanted to get across in, in the article. So the first is that space, despite how prevalent it has become in uh, public society as, as and the interest that we see from all corners of the world, is still a relatively insular community. Mm -hmm. You and I go to the same conferences. It is space people talking to space people. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bubble. And, yeah. And in our mind, that is not the, the model for a successful or sustainable industry over the next 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. uh, it can't be space for space. It needs to be space for Earth. Uh, and, and in mm -hmm. our mind, the benefits of space will largely accrue on the ground for the next uh, period of time. So the space industry needs to get out there and speak to the broader economy and say, mm -hmm. this is the value and capabilities that space can bring to your organization, whatever that organization, whether you're a mining company, an auto company, an intergovernmental organization, a non-governmental organization, or a government. So 
we, we believe that the first step to doing that is just getting out and speaking to these other industries. I mean, it, it is it sounds so basic, but it's a thing that the space industry has struggled with for years. So that's the mm-hmm. first premise. The second underlying premise is that space increasingly has real things to offer other industries. And it's not just things that are interesting. It is things that will improve your operations, uh, make them more efficient, make them more profitable and facilitate growth, which is why we also think we need to excite broader industry to say, hey, there's this big trend going on. Just as I'm a CEO and I ask my head of strategy, how should I think about AI uh, as mm-hmm. part of the future of my industry or my business, we should be asking the same questions about space. Um, and the answer may be, it's not the right time for my particular business for idiosyncratic mm-hmm. reasons, mm-hmm. Um, but everyone should at least start the conversation. And so those are the two things that we wanted to get across in the article. There's obviously more in the article than that, but those are mm-hmm. the two basic ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned there the the space industry, you know, going out, talking to people. So, you know, I, I consider myself part of the space industry and you know, part of the podcast. The reason I'm doing this podcast is to to get the message out but sort of by and large do you think the space industry is capable of doing so or don't we need some sort of like you know translators to translate between non-space the non-space industries and the space industries because you know one thing i see a lot is space people at least traditionally they tend to be you know basically tech nerds are very excited about a technology and of course if you then go and talk to a non-space industry and you know we can pick examples whether that's agriculture or insurance or somebody who would legitimately use space to add value in the organization I mean, yes, maybe they're also emotionally excited about space and want to hear about this tech, these tech elements, but maybe they don't. Maybe they're like, I don't care this is coming from space. I just care whether it adds value to my organization or not. Yep. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I would, I hope that the industry has more of those translators internal to the industry and does not rely on a intermediate layer between space and others. I just think space will be more successful mm-hmm. if that's the case. I think that what you are describing is exactly right, though. Uh, most of the people, or maybe that's unfair, a lot of the people who are trying to sell products that are based on some space technology capability or asset lead with space. And most of the customers don't care. I, I think the analogy mm-hmm. that I borrowed from others, I did not come up with this. Nobody talks about Google as a server company. No one says, mm. you know, a Google salesperson doesn't go and say, hey, I have the best servers. They say, I can store things. I can search things. I'm using my compute power, but you don't care about that. The capability that I'm providing to you mm-hmm. is search or storage or whatever the specific product that they are selling is. The same needs to happen in the in the space industry. I, I ultimately think that most end customers, let's take communications as a subset of the space industry, they are data path agnostic. They need a piece of information to go from point A to point B. And they don't necessarily care whether it goes up and through space and through some inner satellite optical link, or mm-hmm. it goes on a piece of fiber, or it's a microwave, whatever it is. They don't care. They mm-hmm. want to get from point A to point B. They want to get there fast. They want to get there securely. And they probably want some kind of resilience in the network um, to make sure that they're, they're confident that it's going to get there. I, I, mm-hmm. I think that the whole selling motion in the industry needs to shift. And space can be you know, the 10th bullet on the page. It can't be the first anymore. 
Um, and I think that mm-hmm. that's far too common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think maybe just to add, add one thing on that is that I do think we're seeing more companies recognize that and you see business development and sales, sales force compositions shifting. And we've really seen that just in the last couple of years. You used to have your BD or sales team be made up of uh, space people. And increasingly, mm-hmm. you have vertical specific sales forces where you have insurance uh, sales force. Those people have a background in the insurance industry um, and they have relationships and they know the pain points in that industry. Um, mm-hmm. The space industry can teach those salespeople the capabilities that space can bring, but they can't replicate the networks or the knowledge of the pain points that those people already have. And insurance is just an example. The same can be said for agriculture, industrial, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And I certainly fully agree. I mean, as you know, in my day job, I run a space venture capital fund and we would very much like to invest in more companies that, you know, for example, do data analysis for non-space industries like agriculture. I can tell you almost 100% of the business plans we still get these days are basically co-founders who are both for all of them from the space industry. And that that clearly still needs to needs to change. But you mentioned an interesting thing there. You refer to Google and that kind of brings up another aspect, I guess, um, which might be interesting to talk about because the nice thing with Google is it's, I mean, if you just look at the UI, right, it's, it's one line and you just type in what you want to know and, and that's it. And like you said, nobody like sees the data center behind it, or we could even pick a more recent example. That's of course, I already referenced it like a jet GPT. Again, it's like one line. And then people say that, Oh, look, this is a large language model. But I mean, you and I know the average person on the street doesn't care that this is a large language model. Right. And it seems if I, if you compare this to these examples, um, so what basically happened there, right. In Google and chat GPT and many other examples, everything you don't need as a user has basically been abstracted away. I don't feel that's just the case in space yet. I feel we haven't really abstracted things away enough. And would you agree? And then if so, what, what can we do here? Do we need like another breed of startups that's just focused, focused on abstracting a space part away or what, what can we do to take the friction out of space to, you know, phrase it in another way? So I, I com- completely agree. I think the vast majority of space companies are so proud of the technical advances that they're in the process of creating uh, that they want to talk about them. Um, And that is an engineer or a scientist who says, I've been working on this for a very long time and now it is usable and creates value for whoever is using it, customers, et cetera. Um, I think it's really hard to say, I'm not going to talk about this thing anymore. I'm just going to talk about the capability that, that brings to bear. I'm I'm an optimist, though. I, I actually don't know that um, we need an entirely new breed of companies. What I would love to see is more of a maturation of the companies that we see in mm. the market. They move from, hey, we're doing tech, tech demonstration to we're doing some kind of beta product to we have a productized uh, service that we can provide someone. Um, I think that we've obviously seen a a dip in the funding. Um, and so I'm hoping in mm-hmm. some ways that there will be some positives that will come out of that, which will be an acceleration of the, hey, we've got to make money. And the way to make money is solving problems and reducing pain points for our customers, which will then shift the selling motion that we see. Um, so I, I, I think that a lot of companies are in the process of doing that, um, but it will be a bit of a painful transition. Mm. And Speaking of this, you know, transition, I mean, because I guess at the core, what's going on here is that you have a new, very exciting and potentially very value creating, let's call it enabling technology. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, like that can be used again by many corporates 
and business models around the world and, and specifically non-aerospace focused business models. And that's, of course, not the first time that something like this is happening, right? I mean, you mentioned AI before. I mean, I, I remember I started a master's degree in AI, I think in 2012, and people thought, why are you doing this? And now, you know, AI is everywhere, but it took probably about 10 years, right, to get disseminated as a value-added tool in organizations. Um, before that, uh, you mentioned the internet. So, you know, 20, 25 years ago, the internet had to be sort of digested and integrated by companies worldwide. Are you looking, are you guys looking at these historical precedents? Is there something we can learn in terms of now, you know, facing the challenge of disseminating space as an enabling technology in organizations? So absolutely. I think the thing that maybe the broader public and the capital markets haven't necessarily gotten right in the last three years, though, is looking at the past and saying that it is uh, truly analogous to the space industry. And mm. whether it's the internet or AI or some other technology that is relatively pervasive, the technology cycle in space is just longer than it is in those other mm. industries. It's shortening. Like, don't get me wrong. It, it's it's mm -hmm. certainly accelerating. And, you know, the, the peaks of the waves are getting closer together. Uh, but it's still fundamentally a long cycle business. Like you have to build something. You have to test something. There are limitations in uh, building capabilities in space. There's, you know, metering factors like launch and checkout and mm -hmm. ground stations and all those things take time. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do think there has been a mismatch of expectations between how quickly space can move and how fast uh, the investor community wants them to move. So in that in that sense, I do think space is different. That that being said, I think the analogs that you mentioned of in the past are exactly right, which is we're building some very interesting products. People don't necessarily know how to use them to improve productivity on their farm or in their mine or in their factory. But we're beginning to get more proof points that can then be shared with others and say, hey, factory A did this, let's try it in factory C in a different location um, and see what value it can actually provide to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess now that I think about it, there's also, I guess, various degrees of, uh, let me call it difficulty, uh, again, for lack of a better word, difficulty of companies integrating space as an enabling technology in the organization, right? So if I take an extremely easy example and something that arguably has been successfully abstracted away, it's just the use of GPS or more generally called GNSS signals, right? I mean, that really, I think has been extracted away and companies probably use it all. Many companies use it every day without even thinking about that. They're using, you know, a, a satellite constellation, right? I had someone tell me at a recent non-space conference, which is what do I need space for? I have GPS on my phone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, so yes, the optimistic way to, to, to look at that is that it has been successfully abstracted away to yeah. the point of like lack of knowledge uh, ignor or ignorance. If you want to be meaner. <laughs> but okay. If, if we go one level up in the sort of quote unquote difficulty, then I guess, you know, you'd have sort of companies using, um, remote sensing data, um, like you were already talking about agriculture and precision agriculture. And I guess that's one level of difficulty up. But again, if that, you know, is sold in the right way, and maybe somebody who is on the team of the space company who understands agriculture, and uh, it should not be that difficult, or anybody who's integrating remote sensing data probably is already having a business process that's integrating data from other sources, as, as you mentioned, right? It's in this 
data agnostic. So that also shouldn't be in theory that difficulty uh, difficult. Then I can think of cases though where space could be very helpful, but it is probably really a, a much more difficult stretch of the imagination for the managers. So if you think about you know one big theme right now in the market, also for us as investors, is the potential of in-space manufacturing, right? So actual atoms rather than than bits, right? So thinking about you know um, pharma companies producing biomaterials. In microgravity or, or or certain other material science companies producing superior materials in microgravity. Is that something where you think organizations are ready for that? Or is that going to take a while to understand the potential there? I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, I'm not an evangelist uh, when it comes to, to space. And I, I like your atoms, not bits framing of it. I do think the atom side of space is just going to take longer. Um, mm. uh, I am, and I say I'm an optimist and I believe that it will occur and will grow. Um, think about the total down mass capability that exists in the space ecosystem right now. Mm-hmm. In the in the public markets, it's almost zero. I mean, down mass is completely controlled by governments at the moment. Now you you can use... you could rent a you could rent a dragon if you if, if you show up at SpaceX and you can actually actually have enough money. So I think it's a chicken and egg, right? And I've actually had these conversations with SpaceX. Like I think you could absolutely get a dragon. The problem is you don't have enough demand on the other side. To exactly. fill the dragon. So and that's the problem. It's there is not a it's really hard to do a small node dragon, uh, mm. you know, a cargo dragon, or you know, you can use one of the other down mass capabilities. There aren't there aren't a lot of them, but there are some there are some limitations and some lumpiness on capacity and cost in down mass. Um, and I, I think that's just gonna slow down the industry for a bit. So let's say theoretically someone built something amazing on ISS and it was proven to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have a production limitation of how much volume you could produce mm-hmm. on the ISS. Mm-hmm. And then you would have to do down mass through one of the accepted ISS cargo mm-hmm. carriers um, with an existing contract. Um, and I think that the maturation of that will just take longer than people think. And ultimately, do I hope that we see commercial uh, stations that will have access to a more free and open style of of down mass capability? Of course. But then you're building more and more steps until you get to uh, the real commercialization of of Leo. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to see that happen. I just I don't think it's going to happen in 20 three or 2024. Yeah, probably agreed. And so let's go even further out on this sort of, you know, difficulty or mode, whatever you want to call it, the scale of integrating um, the potential space benefits in your organization. Let's have some fun with this. So um, some people are also talking about space mining again, you know, things like yep. asteroid mining or mining of um, certain elements on the moon, including water. Um, asteroid mining was, as, as you know, asteroid mining mining was already a topic about 10, 15 years ago. There was a couple of prominent startups, both, both essentially failed. It's yep. now come back. There was um, actually one of the last episodes of this podcast had Matt Gallic from Astroforge. They want to mine asteroids. They got um, successfully um, raised a seed round. If you're a terrestrial mining company, is that I mean, should you spend any time thinking about this? Because I can I can argue it both ways. I could say sort of like, well, that's probably going to take a very long time. But then I'm also like, from the little I know about mining, like developing a new mine on Earth also can take like more than a decade. So I'm not sure. Yeah. So I, here, here's what I think. I think it's a, it's a great question. And there is no one who 
has spent any time in space who isn't intrigued by the idea of capturing some rare metal that is worth trillions mm. of dollars and then bring it back. It is just such a cool concept and, and thought. Um, when I think about the terrestrial mining companies, the framing that we typically take is who is the best owner or better owner of the risks inherent in any endeavor? Um, do mm -hmm. I think that any of the terrestrial mining companies are the best owner of the risks associated with space mining? It's not clear to me that they are. And if, if I was, um, if I was advising one of those companies, I would likely advise them to stay close to the space because you want to stay informed. You want to understand mm -hmm. the process. You could even make a uh, what would be a relatively small bet to them, but could be a relatively sizable bet to someone in the space mining industry. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know that I would want to go all in quite yet because not because they shouldn't do it, not because it's a bad idea, but because it's not clear to me that they are the best owner or understander of the risk associated with space mining that that is more like a space company who, who is oh, better? I was gonna say I, I was gonna ask who who the natural risk owner would be in whatever I, I was thinking like okay you're probably thinking about govern governor governments so it's it's governments or it is uh companies that have experience in interplanetary probes and uh things like that I mean there's not that many companies who have mm -hmm. worked with uh governments on it anyone who is associated with uh dart the asteroid redirect program I mean, mm -hmm. those people certainly understand what they're doing there have been a few other visits to uh yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and uh, Osiris Rex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of those companies, I think, are better owners of the risk than a terrestrial mining company, um, because what I don't I don't pretend to be a, a mining expert, but what risks do I think they're best suited to own? You know, potentially identifying places to, to dig or mine and then owning the risks of actually operating a mine, which is not an easy thing to do. Neither of those mm -hmm. two things are necessarily what we're talking about in the interplanetary side. That being said, mm -hmm. I really hope someone is able to crack the code on how to do it in a in a profitable way. I do think that there should be some first some collaboration with governments. I think that all mm -hmm. interplanetary stuff has been with governments um, mm -hmm. and uh doing it collaboratively with any government is, I think, a, a good idea. Yeah, I agree. Sort of like a public-private partnership, at least, or something like that. Yeah, I think and I'm guessing sort of... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and then another example I was going to mention is sort of like utilities and, um, you know, space-based solar power, which is again, like, it's like asteroid mining, right? It's like a long-standing dream. It's sort of like, it was on Vogue about, I, don't, I think 15 years ago, the US government did a bunch of studies, um, I think DOD, out of DOD on space-based solar power, then it kind of, it, it fell away again. And now it's sort of like um, coming back into many people's imagination because, you know, we have Starship on the horizon with its enormous payload capacity. But it seems like probably the same caveats would apply that who's the natural risk owner probably has to involve governments and so forth. I think that's I think that's right. The the one place where I'm curious about terrestrial industry engaging is lunar operations. And I do think that mm. there are certain things that may emerge on the moon towards the end of the current schedule of Artemis missions, where you're going to see more of a blending of some of the terrestrial companies and the space companies. And I'm frankly excited about that. But again, I don't think that that is immediate. That is the government, the US government and its partners is going to underpin a lot of that through 
through hopefully successful Artemis missions um, so that we can create a foundation uh, of activity on the moon that will attract uh, private industry to engage. When you're thinking about this lunar activities, this is, by the way, something also in my venture fund, we are regularly thinking about sort of when we're ready to invest in lunar business models, sort of the, the, the big challenge we have, I think, us and many other people is to sort of, well, for the lack of a better expression, to, to think about the, the killer app for the moon, right? But are you thinking about an appli actual application or are you thinking actually more basic in terms of like infrastructure that like somebody has to build like, a, you know, um, energy, gr energy grid, communications network, navigation, that kind of thing? Yep. C comms, power, transportation. I mean, let's let's go very basic. Yeah. And then if there's humans, then you'd add life support to that list. Um, but yep. in my mind, those are the the very simplified set of things that that you would want. I think power is going to be an incredibly, incredibly important one. Then there, there's actually been some recent activity by private industry yep. about mm -hmm. having real source. Exactly. Rolls-Royce just um, just announced what last week. I, I don't don't hold me to the time. Something like that. Yeah, it, it was very recent. Uh, their interest in engaging on on that topic. We've seen some sale, solar companies that have been uh, thinking through there. I mean, surviving the, the lunar night is challenging. So there are some real technical issues that need to get sorted out. But you are beginning to see more companies try to do this. Uh, Lockheed Martin just announced um, mm -hmm. a company that will focus on communications. Uh, for the moon and cislunar space mm -hmm. at the end. I mean, I think all of those things are great indicators that people are beginning to think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it was, um, that was yesterday. I think it was called the Crescent, Crescent or yep. something. Yeah, very, very yeah, interesting. It's very cool. And so when you go talk, I mean, obviously uh, McKinsey has um, among its clients, many of the largest companies in the world in, in many different sectors, including aerospace, but again, also in non-aerospace sectors, when you go talk to them about space strategy and developing and implementing a space strategy, what, what do you tell them? How should they go about it? Yeah, so the, the first thing that, that we try to do is almost entirely take space out of the conversation. And the best, right. the best way to do that is to talk through uh, case studies, which is, hey, here is a company that used this capability to do this. And I know that was said very conceptually or, or theoretically, it would be more, here is a company uh, that was able to use this capability to improve on operations and efficiency or, or some other, uh, thing that created real value for them. I didn't say the and, words. And does that have to be a space capability or any sort of high tech capability? Being it, it can be any. I mean, the, the lens yeah. that, that we typically take is, uh, you should not anchor on space, but a lot of the mm -hmm. space capabilities would be new things for them. So sometimes there is an element of uh, of novelness that is that is interesting for them. I mean, so there are, I can give you a few examples of how people would do that. There are uh, companies that are exposed to the timber industry and you can use satellite imagery to measure the volume mm -hmm. of wood on land. I mean, that mm -hmm. sounds very basic, but if you could tell someone, hey, you don't, you can then use this information to more tightly tailor your labor workforce because you can say, this is how long it's going to take you to harvest that and then to transport it. This is how many trucks you're going to need. Um, this is how much capacity at the sawmill you're going to need. That mm -hmm. is very mm -hmm. different than the historical approach, which was we're going to take a plot of land. It's 10 acres and it's got this many trees on it. And then mm -hmm. we're going to build in a margin for error. Um 
because mm-hmm. we want to make sure we have the appropriate amount of capacity, people, uh, and transportation to go and do something. Let's just be more precise. And if, if you can mm-hmm. tell any business owner or business manager that they can remove uncertainty and reduce what they're spending on excess capacity, it's great. No, no one, no one talks about space. Um, this is about let's be much clearer on how we're going to use our assets and our scarce resources. You yeah. do the same thing with crops. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, and let's you know think through this. This is actually one of my biggest because you made it sort of sound very easy and clear now, right? But it's my biggest pet peeve when I talk to many space startups, at least currently, right? And again, they're typically founded by people from from within the space industry and typically engineers. Is when they it's they almost never describe the value to the customer in a very crisp way, right? Because Ideally, you should go out there, right? Because at the end of the day, especially in large organizations, as you and I know, right, there's going to be somebody, he has a day job, uh, he's a manager, he has like some budget responsibility, you know, and he wants to spend his dollars wisely. He also wants to spend his time wisely. And the only way you're going to usually convince that person is if you basically tangibly show them, how is that going to move your bottom line? Like, is that thing you're proposing? And again, it doesn't matter, it comes from space or not. Is that going to increase my revenue? Is that going to decrease my costs? Or I guess the, the, the wider stretch that's maybe acceptable is like, maybe it doesn't do any of this in the near term but it secures some sort of like strategic advantage. Yeah. But I have, to fe- I have the feeling the space industry isn't thinking crisply enough in, in those ways. That's, that's why when we talk about it, we try to anchor on case studies. It tends to not be as aspirational or exciting. I mean, a lot of people have proposals that would say, we can do this. And it's always, we can. Um, and we tend to bring to companies, this company has done this. This was the impact that they felt. Um, it just feels more real. Um, and it's a way to remove some of the conceptual big thing futurism um, that I think the industry is very anchored on and more towards the tangible uh, return focus. And you mentioned you mentioned case studies. Have there been are there sort of any things that spring to your mind of examples that which, of course, not confidential, but sort of things we can publicly disclose of large companies successfully implementing space? Yeah, so, I mean, the, technology? The, the, the timber one that I just mentioned, that's a real one. I'm, I'm not going to share the name of the company, but it mm-hmm. is a real one. Uh, we've seen CPG companies um, be able to map their supply chain and commodity inputs in far greater detail than they would otherwise be able to, which allows them to optimize uh, both the timing of uh, inventory as well as the cost of inventory, the cost of production, uh, et cetera. Uh, we also see it pretty commonly in logistics in a way that you're not able to do with other mechanisms. I mean, this is the prolific of narrowband IoT from space. There's been a lot of conversation about it. There are companies who are using it in their logistics chain uh, mm-hmm. to have a much tighter control on when something's going to arrive. That has been a very popular topic for the last 18 months, given the supply chain issues that most companies are experiencing. Um, mm-hmm. We also have very successful examples of people using it in competitive intelligence. I mean, there, there are tools uh, to monitor competitors. Um mm-hmm that are all uh, publicly available uh, and uh, ethical and they're, they're great source of information that did not exist previously. And that will allow you to adjust uh, both your top line and bottom line performance. So we, we can go on and on, but mm-hmm. this is not a conceptual future thing. This is space companies that are getting hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue collectively, hopefully to create billions of dollars of impact mm-hmm. for their customers. 
And then in order to sort of successfully implement it in the organization, just thinking from literally like an organizational hierarchical level, in your mind, what, what works? How do you guys approach this? Is this, is this something that it has to be done from the top down? One has to go in at CEO level to get the buy-in or can is it sufficient to go to like the right departments? And, and also related to that, how do you avoid the problem that sometimes arises with the implementation of new technologies and companies where it basically gets uh, shoved to some innovation officer or some you know some role of a title like that and it sits there with like minimum budget and is basically becoming a gimmick yeah it's it's a great question i don't think there's a simple answer uh i think it varies quite a bit by geography industry idiosyncratic culture of the company or organization um i i do think um that the more the industry can focus on PL owners the better uh the then the conversation is really not about space. It is about uh, what is the value of this capability and how is it going to move my numbers as a PL owner that will make me look good, good to my boss, will uh, be productive and helpful for the returns of my shareholders and others. It's just a much easier conversation to, to have. Unfortunately, as, as you described, a lot of those conversations get shunted to some office that is mm. interesting, but not so relevant. I think the relevancy is in the PL. Mm, absolutely agreed. And so what can and should companies interested in the space topic do besides, um, you know, the things we talked about, which is basically waiting for the space industry to come to them or, you know, go to McKinsey and get advice or listening to podcasts like these. What else in your mind can companies do to kind of inform themselves about the possibilities? I mean, th there are a lot of avenues. Hopefully the biggest one, and I think the one that's most impactful is references from colleagues or contacts that they trust or hearing about it through some competitive conversation or information, which is, hey, our competitor is using this capability mm -hmm. and we're seeing results. I mean, that tends to be pretty That's compelling. a good incentive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Makes the CEO and CFO uh, listen a bit more closely. Um, I think that we are developing a diagnostic on how space can help any individual company, that diagnostic focus first on understanding the starting point of each company and saying, this is your existing set of pain points. This is uh, what capability, new capabilities are coming to market. And sometimes they're not space focused. I mean, of course, we we're trying to focus on some of the space ones as well. But we're, again, we're not evangelists. We are not pushing space for space's sake. It is let's solve the problem. And hopefully some of that will be through the application of new capabilities that uh, the space industry is bringing to bear. Sometimes it's not. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. And so uh, sort of coming towards um, sort of final few questions, among all of the use cases that that you have seen um, of space, what what personally excites you the most? I I still believe that there is a huge opportunity in the Earth observations market. Um, mm. I think that we are in such the early innings of the insights that can be brought to bear from the information that we're able to receive that we didn't have previously. And I, I'm not just talking electro-optical, electro-optical and mm -hmm. pictures sure. is a big part of it, but there are other phenomenologies. I think that the vast majority of pictures that are taken from space are never reviewed or certainly not reviewed in a timely manner because the analysis of all the information is really, really hard. Um, uh -huh. the combination of AI and the increased amount of information that we are getting from all of the new sensors and nodes that are up there uh -huh. is, 
I think still such an untapped opportunity. Now you you could ask me what exactly are we going to see in benefits? I'm going to say I I don't know. I I, I do know that there is a whole host of categories that I see being impacted, but it remains to be seen where a lot of that benefit will will come. I mean, if if you can build a daily um, digital twin of the Earth from space. I have to believe that there are amazing returns that can be had for investors, uh, amazing uh, benefits that can be had for to allay ESG concerns, greater transparency. It's a whole host of benefits that we really haven't touched here. Yeah, fully agreed. And as I mentioned, we would actually, as a fund, we would like to invest more business models like that. But we need precisely this connection of, you know, people who understand what kind of data is available now and will become available. And like like you mentioned, there's more and more sensor types, right? And just the wealth of data, something like a hyperspectral sensor can generate. It's just it's just mind-boggling, right? And then translate that and see how can we connect this to use cases. But I agree, there should be tremendous value generation yeah. possible. So. The, kind of leading to the next question. So, I mean, if, if if you weren't a consultant and you you know you decided to be an entrepreneur in the space sector, is there something specific you would you would pick as a business model? Is is that it? Is it sort of uh, Earth observation so the, data analysis or something else? Um, I think so. There's a lot of exciting avenues, and you're, you're forcing me to 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 pick one or two. Um, <laughs> yes. I think that being the analytics translator layer between the information that is coming from space and solving real world pain points or problems that that's where i would that's where i would focus there's a bunch of different business models some of those companies are going to be vertically integrated and they're going to own the space infrastructure some of them are not um but i do think that being able to solve uh, real world problems with new capabilities is the place to focus. And I, I think that that will be probably the most resilient part of the sector for the next couple of years. Yeah, agreed. And other nice uh, benefits, like it doesn't have to be capital intensive. So even in the current market environment, it's a, it's a good business model to focus on. And a huge opportunity. Fully mm-hmm. agreed. Jesse, the traditional final question is always the same here, which is, um, Science fiction, do you like it? And if yes, what's it, what are some examples of your favorite works? So I, so yes, of course. I mean, I, I have yet to run into someone who spends a lot of time in the space industry who is not, you probably, oh, yeah. we, we've had two or three guests and then typically the end of the episode is very um, strange. Because I don't know what to say anymore. Well, thank you say, for saying yes. I would say yes. The thing I like about it the most is Sometimes the people who are in the industry or adjacent to the industry as observers, um, they're constrained by existing technology in a way that science fiction is is not. And mm-hmm. some, I think sometimes it allows us to see things uh, that we don't otherwise do. I mean, I, I can't say I loved the movie Ad Astra. Did I love seeing a space elevator kind of uh, mm-hmm. conceived? and in use. I mean, yes, that was amazing. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Uh, and the same can be said for, you know, uh, using the moon as a base or uh, exploration beyond that due to limited gravity. Uh, I think that the science fiction that we see both in writing and on the screen is great at conceptualizing things that we struggle with or freeing ourselves of limitations that, that we struggle with. So yes, I'm, I'm a fan. 
you know, thanks for all of the, the work that also McKinsey is doing in your daily work with clients, disseminate the space message, but also in terms of your outreach work with like, uh, with the article, like the one you published a few days ago. So thank you for that. And it's been a pleasure. Likewise, great to speak with you. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.